Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Big box retailers, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a bill in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. Senate Bill 1838 would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, visit handsoffmyrewards.com and tell them to oppose credit card routing legislation paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the History of Africa podcast. I'm your host, Anthe. Last episode, we took a pause from our main narrative to study the lives of ordinary working Malgasi, and how Radama and Rana Faluna's policies designed to foster industrialization affected ordinary people. For the most part, the answer was, not well, and resentment against the system of labor exploitation in Madagascar proliferated. To hold up her increasingly unpopular approach to Malgasi economics, Rana Falona and her supporters turned to increasingly repressive means of crushing dissent. Season 4, Episode 21. How Mad Was the Mad Queen of Madagascar? The coasts of the Indian Ocean are home to a unique species of mangrove tree. In English, it is called the sea mango, after the fruits it produces which slightly superficially resemble, well, mangoes. In Malgasi, the tree and its fruits are called tangena. Sea mango might sound delicious, like a saltier version of the delectable yellow fruit. But before you order some as a side dish, you should know that this couldn't be further from the case. Tangena, in fact, contains a very deadly toxin. Which leads us to the very interesting, if unpleasant, use for tangena in Malgasi culture. The so-called tangena ordeal as it was labeled by European missionaries, was a form of evidence used in criminal trials. In the ordeal, the accused would swear an oath that they did not commit the crime they were accused of. Then, an animal stand-in for the accused was fed strips of tangana fruit which were dissolved in a bowl of water, and what happened next determined the guilt of the accused party. If the animal died, the accused was guilty. If the animal was wholly unaffected, then the accused was still guilty. But if the animal showed some signs of sickness but survived, the accused was exonerated. If someone disputed the results of the ordeal, they could volunteer to undergo the ordeal themselves, with this secondary outcome either confirming or overruling the results of the initial animal test. From a modern perspective, the Tangana ordeal seems like a truly baffling practice. It could be seen as tempting to mock the practice as backwards or uncivilized, as European observers from the time often did. However, it's worth noting that Tangana-like practices are much more of a figment of the past than you might imagine. The Tangana ordeal represents just one chapter in humanity's very long history of trying to discover a perfect remedy to the eternal scourge that is human dishonesty. In my own country, for example... The government tortured civilians with hallucinogenic poisons in an effort to develop mind-control substances well into the 20th century. To this day, in my country and many others around the world, private and government organizations continue to extensively use polygraph tests and voice stress analysis to detect lies in job interviews and HR investigations, despite the fact that widespread scientific consensus says that these machines are less than reliable. Now, I'm not trying to draw an equivalence between poisoning people and the use of lie detector gadgets. They clearly have very different effects on the people involved. 
Rather, I'm just trying to illustrate the point that belief in unscientific methods of lie detection is not as much a relic of the past or an indication of cultural backwardness as we'd like to believe. Despite widespread scientific evidence disputing their usefulness, there is one group which still holds immense faith in the reliability of polygraph tests, and that is the public. The same was true for Tangana. Tangana's exact origins remain unclear, but it's typically agreed that it arose in the state that it possessed in the 19th century, a century earlier during the Merina Civil War, perhaps as a form of speedy justice during a time of great social strife, or perhaps as a practice imposed on the Merina by their Sakalav overlords, depending on which scholarly hypothesis you believe. By the beginning of the 19th century, public trust in the Tangana ordeal was close to unanimous, a certain and unquestioned facet of Merina society. In fact, the public was so certain of the practice's infallibility that innocent people often willingly chose to undergo Tangana ordeal even when they were given other, safer options for trial, even when the accusations weren't that serious. After all, they believed that the Tangana ordeal would work, and therefore, since they were innocent, the poison would obviously pass through their body, only causing moderate sickness. Like all unscientific methods of lie detection, this is the grain of truth which lies within the viability of the Tangana ordeal. Public faith in the ordeal was so high that if someone willingly underwent the practice, there was a very high chance they were innocent. After all, someone who was guilty, who believed that the ordeal would work, would almost never undergo it because, well, they knew that they would die. However, this grain of truth also makes the story of Tangena all the more tragic. Of people who died from Tangena poisoning, they were probably disproportionately innocent of the crimes which they were accused of, and went to the grave believing wholeheartedly that the ordeal would clear their name. But despite widely held public belief in Tangena, there was at least one person who was well aware of the unreliability of the process. That was the former king of Madagascar, Radama. In private letters, Radama expressed personal doubts about the efficacy of the ordeal. He stated that he was aware that the practice was more than fallible, and often proved fatal for people that he knew were innocent. However, he also crucially pointed out that abolishing the practice would not be plausible. The practice of Tangena was too trusted, too crucial for the social fabric of Madagascar to be done away with. As he stated in one letter, quote, If I abolish the Tangena, especially before Madagascar was in a position to spend a large sum for the organization of a new general police force, I would have to reproach myself for this measure all my life. Once this mode of judgment is annihilated, the most dreadful anarchy would reign throughout my island. And that, having regard to the present state of native society, this practice is still the best means we possess. No doubt, I see as you do that this practice is barbaric, that it is horrible. But there are cases where one is forced to tolerate the sacrifice of a few innocent people to achieve the general good. Due to his belief in this justification, despite his personal disdain for the practice, the use of Tangena ordeals grew considerably during Radama's reign. With a growing population and expanding frontiers, Imerina's law enforcement bureaucracy was quickly overwhelmed. In addition to high public trust, the Tangena ordeal was also an undeniably convenient and, importantly, cheap solution to law enforcement. 
as opposed to a long investigation and trial with a possibly unclear resolution that might leave some people unhappy, the Tangana was a quick, cheap solution which would almost certainly satisfy all parties involved, with the possible exception of the person being poisoned. But over time, the ordeal started to seriously get deep under Radama's skin, and he couldn't stand to let it continue to grow at its current pace. Apart from his moral concerns, economic matters were also convincing Radama that it was a bad idea to let Tangena continue to grow in use. Estimates for the fatality of Tangena vary considerably depending on the ripeness of the fruit at the time of the poisoning, the dosage, and how much the fruit was watered down, and could end up landing anywhere between a 30% to 80% fatality rate. This was not an economic problem when the deadliness of the ordeal was limited to the use of animals, and when Tangana was rare enough that only a small total number of people died from it each year. But with the need for shortcuts to streamline legal proceedings for the overwhelmed police force, the initial animal trial became increasingly a formality, while the use of human Tangana on the first try rapidly grew. By 1820, over 1,000 people were dying from Tangana poisonings every year. Obvious moral concerns aside, this was obviously a ticking disaster for the already labor-strapped economy of Madagascar. So, in the final years of his reign, Rilama actually banned the use of Tangana on humans, limiting its use exclusively to animal proxies for the accused. But the prohibition of human Tangana did not outlast Rilama's rule. Following his passing, Imerina fell again into a brief state of chaos. Between the military coup propelling his wife, Rana Faluna, to power, as well as the opening attacks of a French invasion, and growing unrest among Madagascar's working classes, this was the environment of chaotic strife in which Rana Faluna decided to reintroduce the Tangana ordeal. In this drive, she found her Prince of Terror in the form of a man named Raini Joharie. Raini Joharie was the Sampia guardian of Kelly Malasa, who, along with the late General Andrea Mihaj, had helped bring Rana Faluna to her position of power. Crucially, unlike Andrea Mihaj, Raini Joharie was the furthest thing from a westernizer. Like much of the Merina elite, he understood the need for western technologies and production techniques. But as one of the foremost religious leaders in the country, he was also a staunch cultural conservative. He drastically opposed Radama's permissive attitudes towards Christianity, his European-style clothing, and his support for missionary schools. He also resented Radama's prohibition of the human Tangana ordeal, since, well, Raini Joharie supported it as an effective means of maintaining social order, especially in trying times. And upon assisting Rana Faluna to the throne, he finally found a like-minded ally. As we covered last episode, Rana Faluna and Radama's reigns had each had interesting effects on Madagascar's social climate. While the traditional agrarian economy was largely replaced with enslaved labor, only for Hufa farms to begin to go bankrupt as enslaved labor grew more and more expensive, and slave ownership became increasingly consolidated to the upper class. Not to mention, traditional Malgasy religious ideas were challenged by a small but growing number of Christian converts on the island. Foreigners were arriving on Malgasy shores, both in the form of imported enslaved workers and industrial artisans from Europe, the Mascarenes, and India. For the average Hufa, 
This was a very confusing and even frightening time to be alive. In this atmosphere of confusion and rapid change, a new trend emerged of witch hunting. In Malgasy, the word musafie is often translated as witchcraft, but this is only part of the story. The idea of Mosafie existing had been present in Malgasy culture long before Radama's reign, with witches often being blamed for bad harvests or livestock deaths. But in the chaotic atmosphere of 1829, accusations of Mosafie proliferated. Distrust between the social classes, between communities, and between municipalities sometimes even resulted in entire regions being collectively accused of witchcraft. To settle public unease, Rana Faluna took the suggestion of Raini Joharie, the first general Tangena. Merina bureaucrats traveled throughout the Merina provinces, taking a general census of people accused of witchcraft. From there, each of the ultimately 20,000 accused people were made to undergo Tangena, with about half of them passing away from the ordeal. This marked the bloody beginning to an era of death and violence at an unprecedented scale. With the re-legalization of Tangena poisoning, the practice spread rapidly throughout Madagascar, providing an easy and quick solution to the social problems of this era of unrest. While the state could condemn anyone to undergo the ordeal, even ordinary free citizens were empowered and sanctioned in poisoning enslaved workers for any offense they saw fit. In this sense, the widespread implementation of the Tangana ordeal was far from only a state matter, but extended into the private lives of ordinary people, both free and enslaved. As you may expect, enslaved workers bore the brunt of the violence of the Tangana ordeal. But truly, no class were safe. Andriana, including high-ranking court officers, generals, bureaucrats, and regional noblemen, were all constantly at risk of poisoning. The paranoid atmosphere of the era was the perfect breeding ground for ambitious politicians to eliminate their rivals. Accusations of treason, even those that were obviously spurious, were taken seriously if the accuser was in a position of authority. If the Tangana ordeal failed, there were few consequences for the accuser. But if they succeeded, they and their cronies could gobble up the property of their now slain adversary. Even the Prime Minister of Madagascar, theoretically the most powerful man in the country, did not overcome the risk of poisoning. When Andrea Mihaja, the first Prime Minister, was accused of treason, he was ordered to undergo Tangana. Being the westernizing reformer he was, he agreed with Radama's skepticism of the practice and refused. This refusal was seen as a sign of his guilt, and he was instead simply stabbed to death. His replacement, Raini Haru, similarly did not escape accusations from his rivals. While it's not known for certain if he ever personally underwent the ordeal, much of his direct family did, and many of them didn't survive. The re-emergence of Tangana under her rule is the primary root of Ranafaluna's reputation of the Mad Queen. Proponents of this depiction often point to the vast number of people murdered by poisoning under Ranafaluna's rule. Her reign is compared by these people to that of the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia due to the allegedly high volume of executions, with the highest estimates claiming that Rana Faluna's revival of Tangena killed upwards of half of the Malgasy population. But this is kind of ridiculous. The bulk of modern scholarship, on the other hand, 
very firmly suggests otherwise. Closer examinations of census records taken by the Merina Empire very clearly dismiss the idea of such a drastic population decline. Yes, the population did decline a bit, and yes, this was certainly due in part to Ranafalona's revival of Tangena. Now, Ranafalona's revival of Tangena did undeniably murder a great deal of people. Common scholarly estimates usually claim that between 2 and 4% of the Malgasi population died from preventable deaths during Ranafalona's rule, including Tangena administration, but also including war and famine. And I don't want to underplay that number. 2 to 4% of a country's entire population dying is an enormous death toll. And this is still absolutely startling and a horrific loss of life. However, it is nowhere close to the autogenocide that is often depicted as. Now, we're going to take a quick break, so please don't go anywhere as we get a brief word from our sponsors. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Big box retailers, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a bill in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. Senate Bill 1838 would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, visit handsoffmyrewards.com and tell them to oppose credit card routing legislation paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. Tis the season to shine with H&M. Discover the holiday collection and find fashionable pieces for your wardrobe or for under the tree. Get inspired and dazzle with this year's glam. From tuxedo styles, bow detailed pieces, impressive prints, and more. From unforgettable looks to unforgettable gifts. With fashion finds to home decor, find it all at H&M. Treat your loved ones and yourself this season. Shop in-store or at hm.com. Apart from the Tangena poisoning, the most infamous legacy of Ranafalona's rule was her deteriorating relationship with the island's Christian community. If you remember a couple episodes back, the relationship between Ranafalona and the island's Christians started out positively enough. During the first several years of her reign, Ranafalona relied heavily on the labor of Christian specialists, most of whom worked for the London Missionary Society, in setting up factories and spreading literacy. When popular violence broke out against missionary schools, Rana Falona, in fact, went out of her way to secure and protect missionaries and students from riots and attacks. On a few occasions, she was actually even noted as attending church services, not due to her own religious beliefs, but rather to simply show her support and love for the missionary community. Rather than seeking to undermine the missionaries, Rana Falona's early reign was clearly focused on aligning them to her goals and controlling them. But while relations seemed strong on the surface, Rana Faluna grew equal parts frustrated and concerned with her missionary employees. While Christian missionaries had mostly struggled to convert Malgasi in their early years, by the late 1820s, the Malgasi Christian community began to grow for the first time. Christianity, or as it was known in Malgasi, Niefifihan Vavau, or the New Faith, started to find new success as Malgasi practitioners began to syncretize the faith with pre-existing Malgasi religious beliefs. Despite attempts by missionaries to discredit the power of Saint-Pierre and Odier, most Malgasi converts continued to believe in their power. Rather, they simply rationalized that Jesus Christ was himself a form of Saint-Pierre, the Odier Ain, or Charm of Life. 
Christ was the most powerful Saint-Pierre, through which the Hasina of all other charms flowed. Essentially, the worship of the Christian god took place through the mindset of religion already familiar to the Malgasy. While missionaries at first tried to dissuade Malgasy from viewing Christ as the charm of life, they only started to find success when they realized there was no point in swimming against the popular current. Starting in 1829 and continuing throughout the rest of their history on the island, London missionaries conceded on syncretism and began officially referring to Christ as the charm of life in their official Malgasy communications, and even began intentionally framing Christian theology with a vocabulary familiar to Malgasy religious worship. The first major group baptism in Malgasy history took place in 1831 and alarmed Rana Falona. She was beginning to grow worried that the slowly spreading faith was undermining the confidence in the system of Hasina central to Malgasy politics. The Mpanjaka Madagascara legitimized her reign with the same ideology as previous rulers, that she was the conduit between the essence of Hasina provided by the spirits of the ancestors. Ranafaluna viewed the rise of Christianity in an almost economic manner. She, like many other Malgasi, understood Christianity in a way filtered through her own religious beliefs. The way she saw it, Christianity was a similar system of beliefs to the Merina traditional religion, but simply worshipped the ancestors of the Europeans arriving on the island. In this sense, the rise of Christianity was a threat to Madagascar's spiritual economy, since each song of praise sung in a church was basically a net loss of Hasina from Madagascar to the Europeans. Converting to Christianity was no mere personal act of faith, but an act of treason against one's own ancestors. Starting in 1831, the Empress issued a set of decrees increasingly regulating the rights of Christian converts within the Merina government, worried that bureaucrats of the Christian faith would be disloyal to the monarchy. Government ministers, nobility, and soldiers were now prohibited from receiving baptism and engaging in Christian marriage ceremonies. The 1831 edict marked the first step of an emerging feud between Rana Falona and the London Missionary Society. Baptisms and weddings of government officials often continued in secret, with those who were caught being tried and typically executed. In 1835, Rana Faluna wrote a letter to the London Missionary Society urging them to stop converting Malgasy people to Christianity. Quote, You Europeans may follow the customs of your ancestors, for if there be knowledge of the arts and sciences that will be useful to my country, teach that, for it is good. And I inform you, my relations and friends, of this that you may hear it. God is not the God of one nation only, but of all. For all nations have different words for God, and all follow the customs of their ancestors. These are the laws of my country. Later that year, on March 1st, Rana Faluna prepared a final speech on the matter of Christianity at the Royal Assembly, or Kabari. In order to hype up the event and ensure that her citizens knew of its importance, Rana Faluna arranged a massive and exciting military parade to precede it including the firing of artillery shells and a march including half of the Malgasy army. At the Kabarie, a national assembly of over 150,000 subjects gathered at the Rofa Fantanaripu, and the empress declared, quote, Remember, it is not about that which is sacred in heaven and earth, that which is held sacred by the twelve sovereigns and all the sacred idols that you are now accused, but it is that you are doing what is not the custom of our ancestors 
That I abhor, saith Sovereign Empress Ranafaluna. The March 1st Declaration marked a permanent severing in Ranafaluna's relationship with the Malagasy Christians. All Malagasy converts were ordered to publicly revoke their conversion and renounce their Christian faith. Those who refused were given gradually more intense punishments in an effort to coerce deconversion. If they initially refused, they were fined large sums of wealth and property. This was enough to convince the vast majority of Christians. If they continued to refuse, they were jailed. Finally, if they persisted in their refusal to reconvert to the Medina traditional faith, they were executed, typically in a dramatic and public fashion. At the site of Andahalu, a neighborhood in Antanarifu, several Malagasy Christians were stabbed to death with spears, while more than a dozen others were dangled from a cliff on ropes, given one final chance to rescind their faith, and then cut loose to plummet their death. Many others were administered with Tangena. The scale of death in the anti-Christian pogroms was, well, small, since most of the already quite small Christian community chose to publicly rescind their faith rather than face death. Regardless, it still had a major effect on Malagasy history. With the Empress of Madagascar having outlawed Christian conversions, the missionary society was now faced with a crisis. They had committed a great deal of resources towards Madagascar as a means to convert the population. Now that that was no longer an option, should they leave or simply wait and hope that the queen had a change of heart? Contrary to popular depiction, Ranafalona never actually expelled the missionaries, and in fact, heavily lobbied them to remain in Madagascar despite the end of their proselytization. This pitch ultimately failed. By banning local conversions, there was no more point in them being on the island, and by 1837, all of the London Missionary Society had left. With the missionaries now leaving Madagascar, Ranafaluna now relied primarily on two new groups of people to continue running her modernization plan. These were the Malagasy managers who had worked under the London missionaries, and secular foreign businessmen like Jean Laborde and Napoleon de la Stelle. These groups would prove more than sufficient in staffing Madagascar's factories, but manning schools proved more difficult. So, while industrialization continued humming along, the educational system fell into disuse. But Ranafaluna was not done trying to showcase the grandness of the progress being made under her kingdom. Similarly to her predecessor, Ranafaluna sought to showcase the economic progress of Imerina with the construction of an ever-grander palace within the Rofa of Antanarifu. She called upon her principal remaining foreign engineer, Jean Laborde. Laborde, as well as a team of Malgasi engineers, set about building a palace that met Ranafaluna's demands for a new home that surpassed even Tranafola in scale and majesty. The plan was to build a design which mimicked Tranafola, but surpassed it. For example, Tranafola had its iconic two-story veranda wrapping around its body. So, the new palace had to have a three-story veranda. Like the Tranafola, it drew heavily from a mix of European and Malgasy architectural influences. Encased by the veranda, the central home was enormous measuring 30 meters by 20 meters in length and width of wooden planks. In fact, the foundation of the new palace was so large that several smaller buildings were made to be moved entirely, being deconstructed and rebuilt in different royal forts throughout the kingdom. But the most impressive part of the building was its roof. 
As a Malagasy building, the new royal palace of course featured the andri, the central wooden pillar used to support the pitched roof. The palace andri was a marvel in and of itself. It was composed of a single 39-meter-tall rosewood log, hauled all the way from the east coast. The palace's central pillar dwarfed the andri of every other building in the Rufa. As the log was heaved into Antanarifu by a team of 5,000 workers, onlookers were taken aback. Jean Laborde himself commented in disbelief, and he commented how impressed he was that such a large piece of precious timber made it all the way across these hundreds of miles with no damage, and noted the sheer engineering genius that the task required. With the Andri brought to the top of the hill and put in place, a 15-meter-tall sloped roof of wooden shingles was placed atop the frame in 1841. The result was the completion of the greatest single monument ever built in the history of Madagascar, the new royal palace Manjakamiadana meaning the peaceful rain. But while her glistening new palace of precious wood projected an image of unchallenged benevolent power, and its name suggested a period of tranquility and peace, the reality was anything but. The 1840s was a tumultuous period in the Merina kingdom. For starters, several coastal kingdoms revolted against Merina rule, and had to be resubjugated through brutal punitive campaigns. Additionally, Madagascar's declining relationship with their former allies, the British, culminated in a violent confrontation. Madagascar's relationship with Britain had been declined by a steady cooling of relations throughout Ranafaluna's rule. The turning point had, of course, been Britain's reluctance to assist Madagascar against the French invasion in 1829, and the relationship only got worse with the exodus of the London Missionary Society in 1837, and the subsequent purges of Malagasy converts. In a final olive branch to try to restore relations with Britain, Ranafaluna sent a group of ambassadors to the Cloudy Island. While the ambassadors were received kindly, the summit ultimately did little to improve the ailing relations between the two states. Finally, in 1840, Ranafaluna refused to renew the treaty Britain had signed with the Merina back in 1828. The diplomatic decay between the two nations subsequently led to a decline in economic ties as well, with trade between Madagascar and the British colony at Mauritius falling throughout the 1830s and 40s. Meanwhile, Ranafaluna became a popular villain in the British press, with British tabloids publishing sensational claims about Madagascar as a vast torture state dedicated to the massacre of Christians. Interestingly, the physical depiction of Ranafaluna herself changed in European tabloids as well. Back when relations between Madagascar and Britain had been positive, or at least cordial, depictions of Malagasy royalty showed them with light skin and straight hair, in an effort to display the Merina within European conceptions of racial hierarchy. As relations decayed, illustrations of Ranafaluna depicted her in a manner typical of European caricatures of Africa, with jet-black skin, unkempt curly hair, and oversized cartoonish lips. These cartoons straightforwardly showcase how racial conceptions of an island like Madagascar could easily shift to accommodate changes in the political status quo, and emphasize either equality or inferiority to Europeans, depending on which was more convenient at the time. The group put under the most pressure as a result of declining relations was the still quite sizable population of European immigrants living within Madagascar. 
When relations between Madagascar and their home countries were positive, Europeans in Madagascar enjoyed a privileged position as intermediaries. Rodama and Ranafaluna's governments gave them high salaries in exchange for imparting vocational and literary skills, as well as for them serving as important lines of communication with both the diplomatic and mercantile communities of their home countries. Merchants from the home countries valued them for a similar reason, since they acted as a gateway into the Malagasy market. But as relations declined, the ability to live this double identity was now made impractical. Rather than agents of trade and exchange, Ranafaluna increasingly feared that foreign migrants could just as easily function as agents of infiltration. Ranafaluna did not want to kick out the European immigrants and lose their skills, but their potential disloyalty was too great of a concern to ignore. As a result, Ranafaluna sought to make the European residents choose a side. They could either live in Madagascar as full citizens with full obligations, including Fanampuana, or they could leave. Citizenship in Madagascar was, for most of these immigrants, not an attractive offer. It came with few, if any, perks that the migrants didn't already enjoy, while adding a great deal of obligations and the harsh punishment for crimes, up to and including undergoing Tangena. In previous times, this would have been an easy choice to make. Full citizenship? I'll pass. However, Ranafaluna was now making an ultimatum. Either adopt full citizenship and all its obligations, or leave and surrender all property to the state. When the British and French governments caught wind of their citizens being given this ultimatum, they were outraged. The two countries, typically rivals seeking to undermine each other's colonial influence throughout the world, temporarily put their differences aside. A joint flotilla of one British and two French naval ships sailed to Tuamasina in 1845. Their plan was, well, somewhat half-baked, but essentially went as follows. The ships would bombard Tuamasina, capture nearby fortresses defending the city, and then capture the city, evacuate European residents, and crucially do so with their property in tow. What happened from there? Uh, well, it wasn't fully decided. A few of the commanders of the planned raid wanted to simply secure as much property as they could, or use the attack to pressure Ranafalona into revoking her demand of full citizenship. Others hoped that the captured Tomasina could be reinforced with troops from Mauritius and Réunion, who could then march on Antanarifu and overthrow Ranafalona, replacing her with a new leader more friendly to European interests. But ultimately, neither of these plans came to fruition. Tomasina was protected by a substantial earthen fort overlooking the harbor. While the British and French knew there was some kind of defensive fortification in the area, they had vastly underestimated its size and its tenacity. The ships bombarded the fort with their cannons for over two hours, which left the fort entirely unscathed. Realizing they were making little progress, a small army was dispatched from the boats and, unsurprisingly, failed to take the well-garrisoned fortress. As the Anglo-French infantry failed to capture the fort, the ships began to suffer a severe counterattack from coastal artillery batteries, of course, which had been manufactured at Laborde's factory, with one of the ships getting seriously damaged. Realizing the plan had failed, the British and French ships were forced to make a hasty retreat. In their rapid exit, not all of the invading infantry managed to make it onto the ships before their departure. Despite its small scale, the result was an embarrassing catastrophe for the French and British, 
with 21 soldiers dead, 53 wounded, and several more captured. Meanwhile, there were no documented casualties on the Medina side. In a final act of humiliation, the heads of the dead attackers were mounted on pikes outside the Tuamasina fort, harbingers of the fate that would meet anyone else who dared challenge the might of the Umpanjaka Madagascara. The attempted attack on Tuamasina was the final tipping point, a permanent rupture in Madagascar's foreign relations. Ranafaluna's policy remained undefeated, and the European population of Madagascar was forced to either choose to stay as full citizens or leave and lose their property. As a result, most chose to stay. To defenders of Ranafaluna's reign, the fact that her government is responsible for the two most substantial military triumphs over colonial powers is her main positive quality. More flattering summaries of her reign credit her for defending Madagascar's sovereignty and encouraging self-sufficiency. While Rana Faluna is far from a national hero in modern Malagasy historiography, and her name still provokes a mixed reaction among Malagasy historians and laypeople alike, this aspect of her rule is perhaps the only element which is viewed with unqualified positivity. But one element of Rana Faluna's rule which is often overlooked was her sheer staying power. Despite presiding over a kingdom facing severe political instability, witnessing multiple coups and takeovers, and fighting off multiple foreign incursions, Rana Faluna managed to rule Madagascar for an unprecedented period of 33 years. Additionally, she did so despite the fact that she was almost 50 years old when she inherited the status as empress. While later European accounts after her death often depicted her as a mere figurehead monarch, controlled by her male ministers, the writings of Malgasy and European historians contemporaneous to Rana Faluna paint a very different picture. Raumbana, a Malgasy court historian who is quite critical of Rana Faluna, credits Rana Faluna herself as the source of the majority of Malgasy policy during this period. In fact, while the empress likely started out as something of a puppet to a military clique, the fact she was able to elevate herself to the position of the true sovereign of Madagascar is undeniably impressive. I bring this up to try to counter the common depiction of Rana Faluna as the Mad Queen or female Caligula of Madagascar. For comparison, the Roman Emperor Caligula, the emblematic mentally unstable despot, only lasted a mere four years as emperor before his assassination. Mensa Bonsu, another mentally disturbed despot of the Ashanti Empire, lasted only nine, and realistically even shorter given that his psychological issues only became apparent pretty deep into his reign. Emperor Yusei, a similarly unstable emperor of Japan, ruled for 15, but most of this time he was a child and was deposed shortly after his unusual behavior became known. Now, having a long reign isn't necessarily a sign of good or effective leadership, but it does show that she was at the very least competent at keeping her own position, which is a strike against the idea that she was, in the parlance of the day, a madwoman. Additionally, in her surviving writings, Rana Faluna doesn't present as an unstable or irrational person at any point. If Rana Faluna did suffer from mental illness, which is a big if, she was very clearly more than capable of managing it enough to the point where it wasn't obvious. I think we can firmly and confidently say that the idea that Rana Faluna was the Mad Empress is a myth. It is inspired more by popular tabloids and sensationalist news of the era rather than reality. But just because Rana Faluna was stable, 
doesn't necessarily mean she wasn't cruel. On the one hand, it's undeniable that the atrocities that took place under Rana Falona's rule have been exaggerated. The deterioration of relations with Britain during her reign led to a legacy outside of Madagascar that was largely defined by resentful writings of returning missionaries, which themselves went on to inspire exaggerated tabloid news. Some oft-repeated claims about her rule, such as the idea that her policies led to the death of half the Malagasy population, are straightforward nonsense, based on a web of ill-informed estimates by European visitors using vastly different methodologies, and overtly contradicted by census data from the period. The island didn't experience anywhere near that severe of a population crash during Rana Faluna's time, at least not according to available census data. If you'd like to learn more about the weird story of how this estimate came to be, the weird math of an otherwise very respected economic historian, and my own struggles to find the Malgasi census of Rana Faluna, then you can check our newest entry into the Behind the Scenes series at patreon.com slash historyofafrica. However, the population of Madagascar did stagnate and decline during this time, and Rana Faluna is likely the culprit for this stagnation. Ironically enough, the best-known atrocity committed by Rana Faluna, her persecution of Christian converts, was small-scale compared to the deaths caused by war, famine, and the re-emergence of Tangena. Additionally, it's worth noting that Rana Faluna's persecution was not based on a visceral hatred or genocidal intention towards the Christians, but towards a desire to maintain a unified, state-endorsed religious perspective in her kingdom. Does that make her actions less morally reprehensible? I'd say it's a matter of perspective, but it is important to keep that in mind. Rana Faluna's persecution brings up an interesting moral quandary. How much does the quantity play a role in our assessment of atrocities? Does the intention behind the committer of the atrocity matter? It's not like the person being dangled from the cliff for their religious views is saying, wow, it sucks that I'm being killed for my religious belief, but hey, at least she's only trying to preserve the ideological unity of the kingdom and not trying to eliminate my entire religious group. But on the other hand, I think most people can agree that both are morally wrong, but the murder of millions is morally worse than the murder of dozens, and murders to exterminate are worse than murders to control. Such philosophical questions are beyond my expertise to answer. Fortunately, the goal of this show isn't to condemn or rehabilitate historical figures who died centuries ago. Our concern is not whether Rana Faluna was a good or bad person, if such categories are like, even a thing, man. Rather, what matters to us is how Rana Faluna should be remembered today, and what impact she had on the narrative of Malgasi history. And this is where I have to disappoint you. You see, if you notice the length I gave for Rana Faluna's reign, 33 years, you might have been confused. We left off this episode right after 1845, and she came to power in 1828. That's only 17 years. Yes, that's right. We're only a little over halfway through the very eventful reign of Rana Faluna. Next episode, we will finally reach a verdict on the memory of Rana Faluna. It turns out that just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. Join us in our next episode, as Rana Faluna fights off a shocking coup attempt by one of her closest friends and allies, Jean Laborde, as he attempts to overthrow the Empress and install her son in her place. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you like our show, then we would greatly appreciate if you could help support the show and our project of freely available online history education. 
You can do this by supporting us at patreon.com slash historyofafrica, providing us a rating or review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or iTunes, or by sharing the podcast with anyone who you think might enjoy learning about African history. This episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including Naomi Kanakia, Ayo Fagbamie, Dimitri, Emmanuel Zaudi, Alexander Travis, B.B. Milliam, Conrad Schwenke, Travis Bell, Johnny Knowles, Godfrey Sebelabie, Evan Edwards, Pascal Makocha, Joe Maxwell, Nketi Nwadike, Sheyuno Lorontimain, Kwacho Amankwa, Douglas Harder, Craig Bolton, Samuel Badu, Rassan Firgiani, Niti, Kitty, and Tariq Beetleman, among others. Thank you all for supporting the show. It really, really, really means a lot. Now don't go anywhere. Let's put a pin in what we were talking about as we listen to some sponsors for this episode. 